Today's guest is Dr. Stephen Simpson, a medical doctor who traveled the world helping sick people in several different countries, who transformed himself into one of the world's leading high-performance coach. He has helped some of the biggest poker stars make millions of dollars. He's also a hypnotherapist and one of the world's most sought-after speakers on how to maximize your potential. His book, Get Lucky Now, no, not that kind of lucky. Get your head out of the gutter. In Get Lucky Now, he theorizes that luck is not a matter of chance. It is something that you can affect with things that you do, the actions you take, the decisions that you make, and your whole entire mindset. Meditation is a state of mind. It's not an act. This state of mind can be found in other places, in other ways, and people throughout the ages have known this. It's really when the ego is quiet for once and your brain can do what it wants to do without any stress. I've been privileged to work with some top golf players, but I work with some of the top poker players in the world, professional poker players, including the world champion. Enjoy this podcast. Leave us a like, comment down below, please, and subscribe. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and check out our Rumble, and we will see you guys later. Enjoy the podcast. Dr. Stephen Simpson. I want to thank you for being here today. What's going on? How are you doing? Well, I'm doing really well. And the main reason being is because you generously invited me onto your wonderful show and I'm looking <laughs> forward to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've got plenty, plenty to talk about. Uh, I want to start with you giving us a little bit of a background because you have a lot of, of things that you, you deal with. So maybe we could start there with who you are, what you do, um, and uh, why you're so well-known? Well, I, I really don't know where to start. I mean, my background is as a medical doctor. I um, uh, trained, and the really the two subjects that I, uh, only two subjects that I really liked in medicine was surgery and psychiatry, and I chose the option of surgery. And um, I made the mistake of uh, going to work in Africa, in Angola, during the Civil War for one year. And I thought then I would come back. But um, as I think you know, uh, once Africa gets under your skin, it has a magnetic effect. And so I ended up um, uh, working, working in um, emergency medicine and surgery. I spent four wonderful years in Nigeria. Um, I spent a further five years in Angola. And um, my career changed uh, to... Uh, very much an international perspective. Um, I was in Africa at the time that the HIV epidemic was raging across the continent. And from somebody who knew very little about HIV, uh, within a matter of months, as far as the rest of the world was concerned, I was an expert. And I was invited to, uh, you know, to go to all of these conferences and give talks and things and was privileged to be able to work with um, you know, uh, wonderful people who had also taken up the crusade, like, uh, you know, Mrs. Mandela. I never met Nelson Mandela, but I met Mrs. Mandela and Bill Clinton, uh, who put their weight behind it. Richard Branson, the British entrepreneur. Um, Bill Gates was heavily involved. And I'm, I'm glad to say that this coalition of support proved very successful because the drug companies at that time you, you know, to them, there was no, their market was in selling these antiretroviral drugs, which were just coming out to the developing world that had money. And a lot of countries in Africa 
you know, some of them couldn't even afford basic malaria treatment, let alone treatment for HIV. But uh, I won't go into all that details, but in the matter of just a small number of years, we were able to roll out uh, very effective treatments across many parts of Africa. And, and then this is the, the Hollywood, fav- Hollywood favorite word, suddenly, suddenly something happened. And uh, I had what I thought was a, tri- a trivial shoulder injury, which actually become less and less trivial and more and more painful and was interfering with my ability to travel and to work. And uh, finally, you know, the do- I, had to pa- I had to pass an ad- annual medical every year and it came to my annual medical and the doctor said, well, you know, how are you? I said, I'm okay, but if you could fix this pain in my shoulder, I'd be a lot better. And he examined me, he didn't find anything wrong. And he called me back a month later and he said, how is it? I said, it's, it's worse, actually. He said, well, we better get an MRI scan because nothing we've tried has worked. And when I, we had the scan, the result came back, which was a total shock to me. I must have been the worst doctor diagnosing myself. Uh, it wrecked, uh, you know, four or five of my discs, discs in my neck, and they'd burst, and that was what was causing all the pain. So then they said, you know, you can't carry on doing this work because uh, I was working for a company. Um, so you've got a choice of a desk job in London, or you know, an early retire or a benefits package to go. So I tried the desk job; that didn't last very long. It was just so boring, and um, so, you know. I took a step into the unknown and I thought, well, I'm, there's no way I'm going to retire. Uh, I've got a little bit of money. Uh, it was a reasonable amount of money. I thought I can take a little bit of time and think what I want to do. And going back to where I started, the two subjects I liked in medical school were surgery and psychiatry, which are poles apart. But over those years, I'd been working with people you know, mentally and physically. And I thought I would really like to know more about the mind and how it works and and I soon became sucked in to a totally different way of thinking about how the brain works and what what people can do, um, me personally, and, and then, you know, as a coach. Uh, and I've been doing that ever since and just love the work. And I'm so, um, you know, humbled and, and feel so grateful I've been given a, an opportunity not to have one career that I enjoyed, but two. It almost seems I hope I haven't stolen a good career from somebody else. But I, I don't hope I'm hoping that's not the way the universe works. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, people like you absolutely fascinate me, especially, and I'll tell you why. Generally speaking, uh, medical doctors with the strict traditional um, education uh, and career don't find themselves in your position, uh, where they're, you know, diving into a whole nother sector, you know, with a whole nother, uh, tradition where you have to learn about the mind and kind of not necessarily reeducate, but, you know, learn more, uh, that wasn't required necessarily for your medical profession. Um, and so when I see that I'm, I'm fascinated because you are now working or you work as well with people who are, high performance individuals and the things that I see, especially on, um, you know, when I was checking you out and when we were doing research is in how to turn luck to your side, you know, how to essentially make sure that things maybe not make sure or guarantee, but to tilt things in your favor. Right. And so I want to know what you found now, uh, since you left, we'll return. I've got some questions on the, the, the time in, in Africa, but 
I, I want to discuss what you found now going down this whole endeavor of the mind and what we can do and human potential, et cetera. I, I was trained in NLP, which some people will be familiar with, neuro-linguistic programming. And that was my introduction to uh, a model of how the mind works, which is, it shares a lot in common with modern day psychiatry, but there are some differences as well. And, and that training um, uh, taught me how to use hypnosis therapeutically. Um, I'd been meditating since the age of 21, and so that definitely helped. And I regard meditation and hypnosis as not quite the same, but almost the same thing. They're ways of accessing the unconscious mind. Now, we'll never, ever know everything about the unconscious mind, and it's just as well, because if we did, we'd try and twist the levers and, and turn the knobs and, and we'd mess everything up, which works much better when we don't have anything to do with it. But if we can at least learn to recognize the signals that come up from the deeper le levels of the brain, then they can be our, uh, they can be our guide. They, they can be our uh, navigation system. We won't get words that come from the unconscious mind because words are an artificial construct of the higher levels, but we will get feelings and emotions. And this is when people say, you know, when that person said whatever it was, they got goosebumps. Or when people say, I just had this gut instinct that this was the right thing to do. Or my head was telling me one thing and my heart was telling me the other. And normally I go with the head, but this time I went with my heart. This is what helps people get lucky. I mean, I wanted to have a title. I wrote a book about luck called Get Lucky Now. And um, I wanted a title that would grab people's attention. And, uh, but then as I got into the book, I realized actually that luck isn't random, that there are some very sensible things that people can do. And you don't need to you know, study as a Buddhist priest for five years or anything. And um, I talk right. about seven secrets and six of them, you know, nobody's argued with me about. And, and even the seventh secret, nobody's, people have questioned me, but they haven't greatly disagreed or, or agreed for that matter. But the seventh is magic because there's something going on in our minds that I don't understand, but I've seen it time and time again that when people put their head in the right place, stuff happens that exceeds their expectations. That's, these are the things that I talk about with the clients uh, that I work with. Uh, I'm curious then, could you in any, even though I know we don't have enough time to, to go through it all, but I, I would love to hear even on a super, superficial nature, what some of those secrets are and how you're helping you know, um, these clients uh, activate that. I mean, meditation is a big thing. We've talked about that plenty on the podcast. We've had some, some people who have been, you know, superstar meditators and, and, and all that stuff. Uh, most of the audience I think is, is well aware of the benefits, but, uh, in a more practical nature, one with which, you know, you, you're hoping to gain some sort of result down the road. I think it'd be cool for people to understand potentially what, what are those things and, uh, how can we do them and utilize them in our everyday lives. Yeah, well, I'll try and give you a few simple things now. Um, and just because something is simple, please don't dismiss it. Um, because often the simple things, they're right in front of our eyes, but because they're so obvious, we just ignore them. An element that people often come to me for help with is, is that of confidence, self-confidence. And 
my my understanding is that when babies are born and when young children, uh, they don't have to go and see people because of confidence problems. And when you watch young kids playing, you know, they're in it. They're in the movie 100%. And there's no ego there holding them back. You know, as far as they're concerned, they're Magic Johnson and nobody's going to talk them out of it. But then something happens and we start to de- we start to get this concept of our own ego, of our own image of how we're projecting to the rest of the world. And, and, and when this ego takes charge, it will be the little voice that we all have in our ear that will be criticizing us and whispering, you know, don't do this. You'll, you, you've all, you, how many people have told you that you're useless at this? Why not just give up? <laughs> and this right. is what most people do. The number of people that I've worked with who have been creative people um, they've written books, they've written music, they've performed music. They've come to the they've come to the conclusion that they're not good enough, good enough. And yet their tutors have told them they are. And, and they haven't they haven't had the, the courage to press that button on the computer when you know you're submitting your book to Amazon, for instance, and it will say submit. Because they think, oh no, I can't. I, I, I need to do another draft. I need another couple of chapters. I've met somebody who's written 120,000 words over five years, and he he says it's still nowhere near for publication. Wow. (laughs) Anyway, so so confidence is a big one. Now, what can you do? What's a simple one? I'll tell you this. Adopt this mantra or message to yourself. From this moment forward, I will never say a bad thing about myself ever again. Now, that's maybe not grammatical, but that doesn't matter. I will never say a bad thing about myself ever again. And if I tell people, can you stick this, Can you stick to this for the rest of your life? They'll say, oh, yeah, I'm going to give this a good try. I said, no, that's not enough. I'll make it easier for you. I want you to stick with this for 28 days without fail. Every time, um, every time you get a negative thought about yourself, or somebody implants a negative thought on you, you can say, never again, you know, I will never ever say a bad thing about myself. Right? And once you start beating yourself up, things change. The chemicals in your brain start to change. You get more of the good ones and less of the stressful ones. And after 28 days, you will have changed. And those closest to you will say, you've changed. What are you doing different? Are you taking something? If you are, can you spare some for me? Well, yeah, we're definitely taking something. We're taking stuff like how the brain should work. So there's one. Would you like another quick one? Absolutely. Yeah, keep going. Uh, I think everybody is going to, you know, want to know them all. (laughs) Okay, well, people will have heard about this one for sure. And, And it's called visualization. All the sports psychologists will say, you know, if you can't see yourself winning this golf tournament, um, or this baseball series or something, then uh, it ain't going to happen. So you just got to have this picture of you winning this tournament. Well, I can't argue with any of that, except it's a bit of a drab movie. Nobody would go to, nobody would pay money to go and see that. Inside your head, you have got to make, you have got the ability to make your own movie better than Steven Spielberg. You've, you've got unlimited budget. You can have as many of the top actors in the world as you want. You can invite all your friends along to have parts in it. And you've got 
those five senses, which is frankly all we have that we perceive our environment through, it's what we see, what we hear, what we feel, what we smell, and what we taste. And what we see is, in most people, the most important. So we have this ability to visualize inside. And when we do, this message somehow or other percolates down to the deeper layers of the mind, and things start falling into place. Now, I've, I've read um, the book, The Secret, and others will have well, uh, as well. And I, they, I'm not sure they talk about visualization, but it's very much the same thing. If you can really immerse yourself in the middle of the movie of what it is that you really, really want, not what other people think you want, what you really want for yourself, for your own reasons, you've improved your chances of getting there. And that's why people might say you've been lucky. One of the most important things that I have learned interviewing all of these high performance leaders is that clarity of mind is crucial to your success. And what good is clarity of mind without clarity of sound? Which is why today's podcast is sponsored by Rode. We across Golaremi use exclusively Rode audio equipment in order to do all of our stuff. If you are an influencer, if you're just a person out there trying to make some good content for your stuff at home, wherever it is, Rode is by far the best audio partner we have ever had. We have been using their stuff for almost five years now. Has never let us down. Truly incredible company, especially with all of the other affordable things that you guys can get from them. Check out the link right down below and enjoy the rest of this podcast. You just mentioned how it's important to watch the simple things, but the immersion I've noticed of the visualization, right? Because I, I come from the field of sports. It's a well-taught technique for many athletes. However, not all athletes do do it, but you, if you notice, I, I spend uh, another portion of my, my life interviewing some of the top, not some of the top, the top players in the, in the world. And I'll ask them about their mentality. I'll ask them about their, their stuff. And I've talked about this many, many times, but they will either on or off camera admit that the thing that takes them to the next level, they don't, the, the training is important. you got to do it. Okay. Eating is important. You got to do it. You know, uh, you need to know the game and you need to study a little bit, but the mind, this visualization, this sort of confidence level that they boost, they all attribute that to the, the deciding factor on the guys, a, that even make it to, to, to the pro level that, that are at the, the top there. And the ones who really separate themselves, they say it's not in their, not in their food. It's not in their training. It's not in, in this. It's the starting point is, is the mind there. And I know that it has to be immersive, right? Because uh, you will get some guys when they learn about this, they'll do it for a day, they'll do it for three days. They'll go play a game. They lose the game. Well, this technique sucks. I'm done with that. Let me go back to whatever, you know? Um, and so also, I'm curious, what about the commonalities you find between these guys who are having tremendous success? Do they have rituals in this? Because, I mean, I, I wanted at least because you've been meditating for so long, I'd love to know what sort of meditation you found or just in general, just some simple principles about meditation that someone could do in order to, you know, gain the benefits from it. When I was at medical school, I think, as I, as I mentioned, I think it must have been about 21 there was this big movement that was going through the West called uh, Transcendental Meditation. And I think it was something like a five-day course that you went on. And they taught you, you know, a mantra and all the basic things. And 
I'm not sure now, even now, that you need to do that. You see, meditation is a state of mind. It's not an act. This state of mind can be found in other places, in other ways, and people throughout the ages have known this. So other forms comparable to meditation are when you're immersed in a particular task that you love doing, um, when you're walking in country, or it could, could be in a city for that matter, and when you're in a state of awe with what you're seeing going on in the world and fascination, when you're wrapped up in one particular thing, it's really when the ego is quiet for once and your brain can do what it wants to do without any stress. And, and you know, as a professional sports person, a company sportsman yourself, you, you, you know, you mentioned it just a few minutes ago. I've, I've been privileged to work with some top golf players Funnily enough, it was a, not something that I chose in my career, but I worked with some of the top poker players in the world, professional poker players, including the world champion. And wow. whenever, they, whenever they do something really brilliant, out of the ordinary, when they post a personal best, I try and get to them as soon as possible before anybody else can, particularly the media. And I say, now, come on, what was different today? Because we've got to put this in a bottle and they, their eyes kind of go up and they're looking up and looking around. And I'm waiting expectantly. And they say, I don't really know. Everything felt pretty much my routine today has been the same as everything. But once I got started, it was like I, I let go of myself. Or it might be, they might say, it felt as if somebody else was holding the club in the hand and all I had to you know, was watch and see where the ball went. And it's this sort of dreamlike state. And, and I think the term that you've, you'd be familiar with is being in the zone. And musicians, mm -hmm. they know how to get in the zone. Writers do. And th this zone is, a, for all of us, I'm sure there's been one time in our life when we felt, gosh, this was brilliant. You know, I never thought I was cap capable of that. And the challenge is to be able to go back there more often go back there easier and stay there longer. And what gets in the way? Ego, ego, ego. Ego is no amigo. That's when people say, oh, no, it had nothing to do with that, Steve. It had nothing to do with that coach you talked to. It had nothing to what you ate for breakfast. Um, so that's what takes us away. When we can connect to the unconscious mind as where we started, that's when good things happen. What I love is that it's actually very you can manipulate this uh, feeling, you know, yourself. You can create it. One of the things that had a very um, big influence on my life was the book Deep Work by Cal Newport. Uh, and it's funny because it's an academic book. And the, the thesis essentially is that you want to get yourself into a state of flow. Number one, like we're, we're basically saying is that you do your best work there when the ego has moved aside. And uh, that we live in a, in a world where distractions, um, the phone people, internet, email, all these things are constantly, especially for the, the technically corporate person, are always in the way. Yet you can craft uh, portions of the day um, or just a, you can, if you can craft your life to live in this state of flow and this state, you will not only produce better work, but you'll be happier. And uh, I can definitely attest to that 
uh, myself. And it was, it's weird because it's such an academic book, which doesn't really have much to do with sports, but you see the same thing there. And I, I've taken that for all the other things that I do. Um, when I, when I study and, and all of that stuff, it's just the message that I, I love getting across to people is that you have no idea really what you're truly capable of, because if you've always been letting your ego tell you what to do, and if you've always been distracted when you're trying to do your work, what your results that you're getting are, are subpar they're, uh, even if they're average, well, maybe you're the, maybe you're the Michael Jordan of whatever. Well, if you've never put yourself in a position or an environment to do that, then how are you, how do you know? Right. And and so I, uh, it, it's really interesting to me to hear people like you uh, echo this, especially from some of the, the poker guys, the golf guys I know do it, and and, and all these guys. I want to I want to ask a question though on something that's uh, related but somewhat different. Could you explain to me what bioresonance therapy is? It looked interesting. What is that? <laughs> well, it, it it is it is interesting. It's it's a difficult one to explain, but I'll do my best. Um, re- resonance is a physical property. You know, we all we all know that an opera singer, if it hits the right note, the glass will break because the glass particles are vibrating in synchrony um, with the the waves, the wave sound waves she's producing or he's producing. Um, in in the army, I don't I don't know whether they do this now, but when soldiers are marching across a wooden bridge, if there are any wooden bridges left, the sergeant major will call out "break step." which means they stop marching and they walk, so they're out of tune. Because if they're all marching, dun, 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 that can set up a resonance with the bridge, and the bridge, theoretically, can um, break apart. Wow. And now there's, there's a Millennium okay. Bridge in London across the Thames, it's a, where people walk across, and they had to close it down after a couple of months because they found this same thing happening. And I've actually taken videos of people walking across this bridge. They all start they're all out of step with each other and then because they can hear their feet sooner or later they're all marching in step or unconsciously they don't even know they're doing it so anyway so resonance is in nature and um, now bioresonance me uh, bioresonance is that there are some frequencies in nature that can be um, beneficial to us and all of us can roughly remember the electromagnetic spectrum at school and then thought, what a lot of nonsense that is, you know, and then we forget about it. But actually, if you want to know about life, everything is in the electromagnetic spectrum because everything in the universe is a frequency. And we know that the Earth has its own frequency. I think it's something like 7 hertz or something, or it might be megahertz, I don't know what it is, but it's a low frequency. And some people claim great healing benefits of some of these frequencies and particularly the earth frequency. And and you can look on YouTube and you'll find these videos and recordings where you can download these frequencies. There are things like the solfeggio frequencies, uh, which you might be familiar with. And and those go back to the monks in monasteries chanting. And, And I love listening to these kind of things. Now, do I think they make any difference to my mind state and stuff? I'm not sure, but I think they might do. But anyway, the fact is I like listening to them. And it's, and it's increasingly being used in medicine. And I think in the future, uh, we will be able to target individual diseases and, 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 and ill sick cells or whatever with the frequency that will either zap them or um, bring them back into harmony with the rest of the body. I mean, we're not there yet, but interesting subject. You know, watch this space, I think. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's as fascinating to me as well as hypnotherapy. And so I know that hypnotherapy can be considered controversial. Um, I don't know anything about it. So I'm curious, can you can you tell me what a patient might come in to solve and then what the process is for them to to bring out a solution? Yeah, well, you'd expect me to say this, uh, but but I don't feel there's anything controversial in, in hypnosis. I mean, to, to hypnosis is just talking to another person that, yeah, there are elements to it that are a little, you know, like body language is pretty important. The words we use are very important, but they, you know, if we're a communicator, those things are important anyway. So, I mean, what do people come and see me about? It can be literally anything and they don't necessarily come to me for hypnotherapy. And sometimes I would don't even mention that I am a hypnotherapist. And I, I think if if I'm if I have a client sitting opposite me and they're stressed out, or I'm stressed out for that matter, then nothing therapeutic is going to happen. In fact, we're sending waves to each other, going back to bioresonance, which are probably about as bad as you can get. We're going to be winding people up, and this is why people get into arguments. But on the other hand, I know how to control my mind, even if I've had lots of stressful things that day. And I can ground myself and be very calm when I'm in front of another person. And even if they come in a bit stressed or a lot stressed, give them a couple of minutes or so, and they'll start working more on my frequency. And that means we've, we've both of us are in an altered state of mind, a better state of mind, a cleaner state of mind, and connecting to our unconscious minds just a little more closely than we normally would. And that's when the magic happens. So it's just mm. talking, really. And, and if you've got a, there might be somebody in your life or the people who are listening and watching to this, they say, when I've got a problem, this is the person I go to. I just want to sit and talk to them, or I just want to listen to what they have to say. So talk is something, again, simple, so we undervalue it. But grandma knew that talking to people in the right way was was never going to be a bad thing, and usually a good thing. Mm. And, and often at the end of a consultation, people will say, you know, Steve, I, I feel better. And I think, well, that's fantastic. And then they say, thank you. And I say, now, hold on. Why are you saying thank you? I mean, thank you for your generous spirit, but I've not really done anything. Okay, maybe I've calmed you down and we've had a talk about things. And they say, well, you did something, but you made me look at this situation from a different angle. And now I, I don't know why I was getting so wound up by it. I found a, you know, I found a, you know, I came to a, a solution on my own, which is what does happen. My clients find their own solutions. I might give them a little nudge, but Usually I don't even do that. Right. And what I think is probably like when you hear hypnotherapy, and I wonder if it's just me though that's thinking this, they get the idea of someone with a pendulum, putting them under, uh, and then making them forget that they are afraid of sharks or heights or something like that. Is there no truth to that being a part of hypnotherapy? Is that where the controversy comes from? Or it, and, and by the way, is any of anything like that possible? Is that really, is that... Like I've never ever talked to anyone. I don't know a hypnotist. I don't know anybody. Is that a real phenomenon or no? Well, 
you know, the, the, you can find different shades of hypnosis from one extreme to the other. And, and the classical model, I mean, hypno, hypnotherapy was first practiced by, you know, German physicians, uh, people like Freud and Carl Jung. And, and uh, you know, I think that's where their client laying down on the couch and they're at the head and they have their watch swinging. They say, you know, watch my uh, watch this watch this swing backwards and forwards. And with every swing, it takes you go deeper and deeper into trance, and maybe it works. And it's said with a very harsh German accent. Well, voice is quite um, it's very important in hypnosis. So I, I think that's kind of the, uh, the the pantomime version of hypnosis. Hypnotherapy is creative. If you're in the right state with your client, the right words will come, the right tonality will come, and the connection to the unconscious mind will come. And, and, and that's all it is. Is it possible to stop people being frightened of sharks? I believe that it would be. Is it the right thing to do? I would say no. I remember very much a client when I was on stage who he, he, he had a fear of... Um, skiing down black runs he was a very keen skier and a very proficient one and i said well have you ever had any bad accidents skiing and he said oh, i've had three really serious ones where i you know i broke my leg and and you know the last time they said i could lose my leg and i said well look i'm sorry but you know maybe there's a message here i i don't want you to be frightened i, I don't want you to lose your fear of a black run um but but uh, you know i i would like to believe that with the power of our, our minds, I, I believe they have an innate skill in, in rejecting stuff that's absurd. Um, but I, I have to say, the, the, the people that, you know, they, they generally, this, the case I just told you is an exception. Generally speaking, you know, people, they might have a phobia about, uh, let's say, a spider. A spider is very common. Now, uh, most spiders are not poisonous, and there's no reason to be frightened of them. They they live with us. They share the universe. They share our homes with us. But some people, they will scan the ceiling and the walls, any room they go into, and if they see the tiny spider, they will start shivering. Now, that is not logical. But telling people that that's not logical isn't going to help. Because the thing is, they would have had an experience maybe when they went, probably when they were a very young child, and it was scary then. But they've spent the next years building this story, and they can't get rid of the um, the, you know, the attachment to to that distant emotion, and that can certainly be helped with hypnotherapy. Uh huh. Uh, you you talked also about uh, frequencies, and that's another one of these buzzwords that's out there. But uh, I, I'm curious about the fact that. You say, and I, I've seen this to be the case, right? If someone who's uh, agitated comes into a room, potentially has the uh, the chance to agitate everyone else. If someone really calm comes into a very uh, intense situation, he has the ability or she has the ability to calm things down. What do we know scientifically about any of that? Uh, do we understand yet? Uh, because like you're saying, you know, there's this resonance. Is that, is someone with a quality resonance? Uh, a resonance uh, comes in, can they affect everyone and just kind of just bring that them up or down to to where they at where they're at? I, I don't know whether there's any science. I, I'm I'm sure there must be, but 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 I think there are some things that 
we, we don't need science to tell us because we know people who are charismatic. Charismatic, I think, comes from a Latin word that means colorful or something. And, and, and people, they talk about this person has an aura around them. And I think we will know people like that. And um, the person that I met who had the, the, the most charismatic impact on me was Bill Clinton. Now, I don't know how good a president really? he was or not, but everybody who's met him has always said the same thing. And, and what I remember about him, he was like, you know, I think he was sitting in a corner of the room and it was the first thing you noticed when you went in there and, and he was smiling and he, he didn't look to be putting on an act. He looked like he was absolutely thrilled to be talking to the people that he was talking to. He appeared completely, you know, genuine and, and authentic. And then there are others that we can definitely put into the other camp. And, and history is uh, littered with people who've had very powerful negative effects over crowds of people. And of course, the example that comes to mind from not our generation, but our, the last century is, is Hitler, who was responsible directly for the deaths of millions of people and was able to motivate sensible, educated people around him to take part in these crazy, evil acts. So, yeah, I do believe, and I think that there is a frequency there. And, uh, you know, just like we were talking earlier, when I'm with a client, if I'm calm, I'm giving. And now, I, oh, now my unconscious mind has kicked in and told me there's a massive amount here. Because we can measure the electromagnetic fields around the heart, and they've been photographed. That, that is pure science. And uh, uh, people who are familiar with the heart math technique and the heart math institute, they they will be able to access all that. But but we, what these people have sh shown is that when somebody's in a relaxed state, meditative state, hypnotic state, or whatever, the energies extend further from their their heart field, and so those will be felt by another person. And then you know, wave, this is now quantum physics. Waves resonate with each other. So I, I think that's a sci possible scientific explanation. Uh -huh. yeah. You don't need confirmation from anywhere else. Yeah, that's a funny thing. I mean, I ask for for the science. I mean, for a, a lot of times people run into stuff like this and are very easily dismissed. Uh, they dismiss it if they don't. Number one, the first thing I would say to 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 everyone, obviously, is experience. You know, when you do get into a deep meditative state and you can... And then when you do some sort of practice, whether that's actually sitting down to meditate or walking through nature or whatever it is that you do to meditate in quotation, um, and you experience it, you don't really need anyone to tell you about the science at all. Of course, uh, you know, when you're on the outside, whether to give it a go, some people feel more comfortable knowing that it's back there. At least that's the way in the world we, we, we live in today. Uh, you, you mentioned the charisma of Bill Clinton though, by the way, you, you got a chance to meet Richard Branson, he's another one of those guys that has charisma, high charisma. Did you feel that around him as well? I'm told so. I've never met him in the flesh, but I've actually um, worked. I've, uh, I've actually uh, worked with one of his companies uh, uh, just on a you know a one day thing, and um, I was talking to his staff. And they told me everything I needed to know. I mean, he, he runs the Virgin Airlines, as you know, and this, this was the Virgin Airlines. Okay. So there yeah, were all yeah. the people who were the um, 
you know, flight attendants and stuff like that. Nobody called him Richard or Branson or anything like that. It was always Richard. They spoke to him in the same way as if they were talking about a, a friend. So, and I've never heard of any industrial relations problems in his country. So, you know, he's built, built this culture, um, which is, it must be an authentic one because, you know, he, he walks the talk. People say he will come unannounced on a flight and he will serve meals to people. <laughs> yeah, that's Doesn't a crazy. Have a lot of ego. No, no, no. I, I, I read at least half of a book one day while I was waiting uh, at a hotel and just kind of got wrapped into it. And he seems to be uh, an incredible, incredible guy. I look to learn from people who have that. Uh, also, I have a, at least a, I have the natural inclination of a bit of a polymath life uh, where I'm, I'm a footballer, but I, have, I do the podcast. I run a channel for languages. I run a separate business. That are on this other business, you know, and and so to trying to find people who have done that successfully because there's not really a playbook on how to on how to do stuff like that. You just kind of you you have to do it on your own, and then you have to learn, and then you have to learn from people who have been tremendously successful at actually actually doing it. Club Libertas. We created this podcast because we wanted to discuss topics that were otherwise forgotten, and they weren't forgotten because they were not important. They're forgotten because we live in a society that is not pushing you to be the best version of yourself. We want to discuss spirituality, making money, getting healthier, learning faster, quicker, learning better, making things easier for yourself, how to become free, truly free in the best version of yourself. This is what Club Libertas is all about. It's a place where you're going to be able to find exclusive interviews, content, articles, and paths and programs specifically on these subjects in a way that you have never seen before. Click the link right down below. Club Libertas is accepting applications and no, not everyone will get in. There is an interview process because we want to keep this as high level as possible. We want you to know that your brothers and sisters within this group and this community are there for you, that you can learn from them and that we can help each other become the best versions of ourselves. Club Libertas, check it out. Link is right down below. Enjoy the podcast. I want to go back now to your time in Angola and Nigeria and also dealing with all this stuff and the crisis situations. I have two questions. My first one is, how did you deal with uh, having to do what you do? I mean, Africa can be a, a crazy place at times, very beautiful and tons of great stuff. But when you're dealing in a, in a position that you are, where you have to deal with you know emergency situations and stuff like this, how did you at that time, deal with, you didn't have all this knowledge necessarily. Um, how did you deal with things? Did you find that you naturally put yourself in a meditative state? Did you get into flow somehow and to do that? And then my, my next question is, do you have any absolutely crazy stories? Because you must from your time there. Um, the answer is, how did I deal with it? Um, I don't think I dealt with it very well because... I was really exposed at the front end and I, I, I saw and experienced things um, that, that I wish I hadn't and, and that can't be forgotten. Mm. And in some ways, I'd moved on from that direct front end part of the job, you know, before I left the company and had my second career. But it was after after that, and in actually, in fact, it was on my first neuro, my NLP course, 
And I'd, I'd started this course fairly skeptically. Certainly the first day, first, first two days, I was uncomfortable with some of it. It was very, very different. And then the third day, I started thinking, no, there is something here. There's something that I could use. And that night, something happened in this hotel room. Um, I woke up in the middle of the night and my pillow was soaked with tears. I'd been crying my eyes out. And I've never, ever done that in my adult life for certain. And I didn't know what to make of it. And there were some trainers on the course. You know, we were split into small groups and things. And uh, during a coffee break, I said, look, something really weird happened to me last night. And this is just between you and me. Should I worry about it? And I told her what it was. And she started laughing. And I said, did I say something funny? Is that a joke? And she said, no, you didn't say anything funny. She said, this is why, what's today? It's Wednesday. We call it Weepy Wednesday because it's the third day of the course and people are starting to process some stuff. And I think I'd been processing some of that stuff from Africa. And, and whilst I can still remember all of it, there's nothing that's been forgotten. I, I can, I've, can think about it in a different way. And, and I think I probably, you know, I, I had to find some way really. And I, I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't, but that did me good for certain. Mm-hmm. Uh, then also because you are, uh, a doctor, I'm curious about the state of the world now, uh, and us having to deal with, and you having to deal with what you, what you did in Africa. I know in Australia, things were quite interesting during the lockdowns and stuff, just out of pure, pure curiosity. How do you think we dealt with this COVID situation? What do you see going forward? What did you learn from it? What sort of lessons can you take? You know, just being a medical doctor and seeing everything. And what do you think? Uh, well, that's a tough question. And I have to say, you know, I can only give you my honest opinion. And um, because of my exposure to HIV, I had to learn a lot about viruses. And, and also when I was in Angola, we had the world's largest ever outbreak of Ebola virus. It was called Marburg di- disease, which is a variant of Ebola, and, and I think even more deadly. And all of these, what all of these diseases have in common is that we have a virus living in the animal kingdom, which mutates and in close contact with humans can spread to the human race, and then it can spread like wildfire. And from memory, I think monkeys were implicated in Marburg, so so were bats, both of these being mammals. And these viruses associated with the animal kingdom have been around forever, and they've caused problems forever. And the closer we live to animals, particularly their body fluids, then the more at risk we are of getting what's called zoonosis, which is infections uh, uh, coming from animals. And the lessons have been very clear. And, and I remember, you know, in the last two or three years before, uh, you know, my medical career uh, moved, transitioned, I had to give some presentations. I think it was on bird flu or SARS or whatever there was the current virus there. And I was speaking to these top corporate people and I was making it as interesting as I could. And I could 
see them, they weren't listening to a word I was saying. To them, the thought of a virus epidemic that could affect their business was beyond their comprehension. And I knew I hadn't got the word across. But my word, there's none of those people now who would say, and anyway, that was, just, and that's just my experience. But I think the world was unprepared, very, very unprepared. We should have known better because a lot of the science was out there already and nothing had really been done with it. We, we move from one epidemic and that goes away and we forget about it until the next one comes. So when it hit us, and it hit us very quickly, governments by and large around the world went into shock. They didn't know what to do. They looked on their advisors to guide them, their medical advisors, and some of them didn't have much better idea either. And uh, and and I, th I I felt at that time that the lessons we'd we'd learned from HIV um, were, were not being were, were not being implemented because you know a virus infection is a virus infection the same stuff works so you know uh, you know keeping away from people who are sick things like that and and the consequences we're still feeling the consequences of um, the global pandemic, the effect, the psychological effects of isolation on people, particularly young people. At my age, if you're not allowed to go out for a year or two, uh, apart from a walk, and you know, I had plenty of stuff to do. I was running webinars, mm -hmm. I was carrying on writing my books and stuff. Right. Um, but if I was a 17 year old, 18 year old, you know, starting dating, things like that, having to stay in a two-bedroom apartment with six other family members, or young kids, you know, not being able to play with their friends. We're seeing the, we're seeing the consequences of that now in that generation. And the economic consequences of shutting the whole world down. I'm, I'm speaking in Australia now because this is where my daughter lives, but I, you know, I'm a resident of the United Kingdom. I live uh, outside London on the coast. And, um, you know, I, I missed seeing, uh, you know, my first uh, grandchild. You know, I couldn't see him until he was two and a half years old or whatever. Okay, you know, we got Zoom, thank goodness for that. But what about people who lost loved ones and they couldn't even go in and hold their hand and, you know, console? It's, it's, it's brutal. Now, was, were these the things the right thing to do? I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know enough about this uh, uh, virus. I've had it myself, and that was bad enough. I think I might have had it twice, as I'm sure pretty much everybody in the world has now. Yeah, yeah, almost everybody. Yeah, at this point, I know. And now it's something that we just live with. It's. I know time will still tell uh, for what all the decisions that were made and what is there. We need a bit more distance, uh, but for sure, some stuff will will have some different viewpoints. I think uh, just in general. Um, can we go back real quick to NLP? Uh, because I forgot that I, I want to say this is over almost 15 years now. I think I read a, an NLP book. I feel like it was potentially becoming more popular around this time. And I had somehow I was reading a book on body language. They had then discussed NLP techniques and it went to the, the point. Now I know it has NLP as a, as a, for some people swear by it. And I know the people who don't point to the more, let's say, conspiratorial fringe techniques uh, because 
if I want to remember right, there was, if you can see someone looking a different way in this eye, they're accessing this part of their brain, which means X sort of thing. And I, I don't know, clearly, I don't know what I'm talking about. I have no idea. But are there techniques and things like that taught within NLP where it's almost uh, as, as if to, to look at the human as a computer or a, uh, something that you could kind of program in that, in that sense that if, if these things are being shown, then it means potentially this. Uh, are you aware of those techniques and things that I'm talking about? Well, there are, there are NLP techniques. And as it happens, I, I don't use many of them because um, I don't find them immensely useful. Well, I find them useful, but I find other stuff in context more useful. But what I do, what I got from NLP was the importance of finding ways to connect to the unconscious mind, because that's where therapy takes place. You can talk to your blue in face from your conscious mind to the other person's conscious mind, talking about rational, logical stuff, and that doesn't work. You've got to go deeper down, and you, you've got to learn how to go deeper down. And I learned about the, the power of words. I've written a book about the power of words and, and about how language is an artificial construct that can get us into a lot of difficulties. And the interesting thing about this is the one that most people are familiar with. They call the eye access cues. They, the theory is, is that um, this is where it gets a little bit confusing. Um, if <sighs> if a person if if a person moves their eyes to the left, then they're 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 um, remembering stuff. They're accessing their memory banks, and if their eyes are moving to their right, they're like visualizing. They're making something up. They're constructing something artificial that's not real. So if that's true, then you've got a, you know, like a lie detector test. You can ask them, you know, a question and which is, and if they're having to look to the right, you know, they're making something up, you know, they're not telling the truth or might not be. But it can't be as clear cut as that. And the, com the complication is, is that I'm a left-handed person. So if these were true, then I'd be looking in the opposite direction. So I don't think you can use it to hire people for interviews or to tell if they're lying. But having said that, I got on in my primary school, you know, the first school you go to from the age of five to 11 or stuff, they were the most miserable schooling years of my life because I, I didn't fit in. You know, I've told you I'm left-handed. My handwriting was awful. Um, I'm probably a little bit um, dyslexic. It hasn't stopped me writing seven books. But if those teachers had had their way, it would do. And they'd ask me a question and I'd sit back in the chair and I'd look up at the ceiling and they'd scream at me. You won't find the answer written on the ceiling. And how wrong could they be? I wish they were alive now. I'd love to have a little gentle talk to them. <laughs> because what I was doing, I didn't know the answer to the question. So my eyes were spinning around in my little head, you know, trying to find something yeah. sensible to say. And because I'd had the fear of God put into me, again, I was panicking. So I'm not, no great thought is ever going to come from being in a panic. So, yeah, that's the apparently the CIA have used this, and I'm not sure whether they still do or not. Mm -hmm. But um, this, like most mm -hmm. things, there's probably a little bit of truth. And in fact, that goes the eye access cues that goes back to a psychological paper published in 1880 or something. So, NLP, I don't think NLP really invented any of these things, it kind of bundled some stuff together. Sure, sure. Yeah, like that. It, it, it probably is somewhere there as most things are like you say there's some sort of balance there may be a kernel of truth within it 
but you will need other uh, tools and tactics to to gain any 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 real truth from him. Uh, I have two last couple things that I wanted to to talk about before we before we go. But one is dreams and dream therapy. If you're so connected I, and you've written books, you know about Jung and and, and Freud and all of this, where do dreams fall on, you know, your radar, uh, if at all, have you ever used them? Do you ever tell, you ever talk about them or try and solve things in them? I mean, I know it's a popular, popular thing as well. I don't do dream therapy as such, but I do think that dreams are important, but I think we have, we have different kinds of dreams. There's a very common expression that people use and I've got it on my desk right now. People will often put a little notepad by the side of their bed because they'll say what, you know, I go to bed, I can't go to sleep, I'm worrying about this problem, I finally go to sleep, four o'clock in the morning, I wake up and I've got the answer and I write it down because I know if I don't, I won't remember it. That's a very common story and that sometimes happens to me and it can be so powerful sometimes that I don't write it down I think, okay, I'm going to go, I have to get up. I get up and put my gown on and go into the, my uh -huh. study and write it down. And then when I've got it all written down, I can go, I, I go and fall asleep immediately then. So it's the unconscious mind working. You see, the great thing about sleep is that ego, no amigo, is switched off or largely switched off. So that's when the unconscious mind can start sifting through some of this stuff and trying to make sense of it. What's important, what's not important. Uh, and number one, yeah, uh, I've, I've dabbled in that world uh, a little and it's amazing what you can do, especially with training and practice, uh, as well. Uh, we live in a world where most people kind of just dismiss their, their unconscious time, right. Uh, when the ego is, is out. And so, so they may just grab for the phone immediately in the morning and then you just, you've lost everything. Or sometimes even you might wake up and think, oh, I won't forget that. And then by breakfast it's gone. Um, and, uh, one of the most interesting things I think in, in studying and treating, let's say lucid dreaming, uh, in the same form of training that I would, that I was as an, as an athlete is that the more you give your subconscious mind a chance to speak, not only the easier it becomes and the more it speaks to you. That was what I, I noticed. If you ignore, if you just, just say dreams are stupid, my subconscious mind doesn't do anything. I don't care then it just, you can just completely shut it off. Like you can shut off your entire connection to this uh, greater knowledge. But if you start looking at it, it might be, it comes like as a, as a crumb at first. You might get a feeling, you might get something. And then you start doing that. You might write down a sentence from your dream. And then before you know it, I mean, when I was deep in, in, in lucid dream training, my notes, I just couldn't, it was just pouring, pouring out of me. All dreams, full things, full understandings, realizations, potential options for how to solve things. And it's just, it's crazy. And to think that that's just available to you at any time, if you want to go and do it, or, but if you don't want to do it, that's fine, just go do whatever you're, you're doing. So I find the whole thing fascinating just in general. Uh, and I want to close up with the, with drugs and psychedelics, um, and maybe just drugs in, in general and prescription, uh, medicine as well. Have you seen, do you know anything about this? I mean, it's another popular topic for people wanting to get in touch with their subconscious mind whether it's taking psychedelics or any sort of any sort of drug and uh, have you seen that uh what do you think about that and then i'll i'll, I'll finish on my last thing 
Yeah, that comes up a lot, uh, particularly questions about microdosing, which is you take very, very small amounts of a psychedelic so you don't have, you know, the bad trip that, that, um, that must be terrifying. Now, I've never done any of these drugs, but I've spoken to plenty of people who have, and they tell me they, they, get, they see the spiritual side of their personality much clearer through microdosing, and, it, and they believe that they're tapping into a higher intelligence. They all use different words for it. And what I would say to that is, and, and why I haven't done that, is because I haven't felt the need. I've, I felt there are other ways to get, and I, I call it you know, tapping into infinite intelligence, tapping into higher self, or, you know, and, and people have got all many different ways that they, you know, they go through religion or through philosophy or whatever it is, or through meditation. Um, but it's a very common topic amongst people today. And I, books have been written about it. So, yeah. 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 It's very, it's obviously very common. I was curious also, what about prescription drugs and dulling your connection to the subconscious? Have you ever heard anything about that? Something, uh, the strong drugs that we take now and potentially that affecting your connection? Well, first of all, I don't think any doctor, I would like to think that no doctor would prescribe a drug without a good reason for it. And back in the 50s and 60s, when it became okay for people to go to see their doctor and say, you know, I'm really stressed, is there a pill? And that's when there were pills like Valium and stuff like that. Well, there are people from that generation who are still taking Valium. The, obviously, the doctors didn't know that this is an, an, an addictive drug. And the, um, these non-opioidal drugs, uh, I know in the States, they've had very big problems with those. And I, it's starting to come into the United Kingdom as well. So it's sometimes easy to start people on drugs and they'll, and they'll feel better. It's hard to get them off. And I know, um, I know that uh, the, uh, the General Medical Council in, in the United Kingdom, they are issuing instructions to the general practitioners. If somebody comes in with stress, uh, do not, as a first recourse, write them a prescription for an anti-anxiety pill or something. Recommend something else. Enroll them in a class. Send them for what might be called CBT training, which is psychological training. Send them on a course on mindfulness. A lot of doctors are using these things now. And I think these are a step in the right direction and we need steps in the right direction because it doesn't matter what we're doing so far. You look at the graphs, the rate of mental illness are going higher and higher. There's, there's nothing that's making any dent in that. So I think as Einstein would say, the definition of insanity is when you do the same stuff and get the same result and you keep on doing it. Use exactly those words, but no, we've got to, we've got to have a paradigm shift in mental, mental health, mental wellness. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and prevention has got to be something that's more, it's, it's, it's something that's deep within, I think, uh, our, our society and culture it's within the zeitgeist right now to simply just have, uh, an easy fix for, for things. And, and, and until we tell people that you have more power than you think you do. And, uh, when we get people growing up, knowing and understanding these things that you're, you're teaching, then I think we'll be on the right track. And it might not be immediately overnight, but if we can get a few generations to start thinking that they have more of this knowledge, what they can do for themselves, how they can make themselves better and, and the lives of other people, 
around them better. And then as a collective, the whole world will be in a better spot in a better spot. Um, so listen, I, I want to thank you. This has been awesome, informative as I expected it to be. Uh, we'll definitely have to do it, do it again and, uh, dig into some more stuff, but, uh, we'll link obviously to all your books and all, all of the, uh, you've got plenty of stuff online to, to check out. We'll link to all that. Is there any place specifically that you want us to send people? Well, you know, my website's got it all there. And, uh, you know, I've, as you say, okay. I've got over 300 videos on YouTube. A lot of the two podcast channels, a lot of the stuff is, is, is free. So I'm not trying to drive people there for marketing reasons. And as I said before, don't discard something just because it's free and just because it's simple. <laughs> so true. So true. Listen, Steve, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. And uh, until next time. Thank you.